Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you. Another Monday evening, another week that we have to reflect into not only the book of Genesis, but as we do from one week to the next, on Wednesdays, we look at a movie and we discuss it, and I say we again because Father Mike is with me each and every Wednesday evening, and this Wednesday we will talk about Dunkirk, so I'm very much looking forward to that discussion. And on Thursday, what I thought I would do is uh, take up a another chapter from my book. Last week I was talking about pornography in response to a question, and it was a question that I uh, took up in my book, and out from last week's program I found myself in several different conversations about my book, A Heart for Evangelizing, and someone asked me to talk about gossip. So this Thursday, what I thought I would do is, upon your question about gossip, I thought I would just take up what gossip's all about and why it is one of the great sins we have to take a closer look at. You know, some of you, like with pornography, might be asking the question, why are you talking about gossip in a book on evangelization? Well, like pornography, the point I make <laughs> in my book is, gossip is just another one of those huge problems one of those huge sins that gets in the way of evangelization. And gossip in a very particular way, because if evangelization is about building up trust and and building up relationships, well, what is the one sin that gets in the way of that but gossip, right? So we'll talk about that on Thursday. Uh, But again, this evening and tomorrow, we are about the book of Genesis. And as we are about the book of Genesis, we are in chapter 15. I more or less wrapped up our discussion with chapter 14 last Tuesday. So what I want to do this evening is read chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. And if we were to say that this evening is going to have two themes or two topics, I think we would go with trust and uh, this whole topic of God being a shield, God being our armor. What is that all about? So trust and, and God as our protection. These are going to be the principal themes that we will discuss this evening. Now, I know you're probably thinking, trust again? Didn't we talk about that a few weeks ago with Abram? Well, we did, but I had my nose in a book this past week by Ryan Topping titled, Rebuilding Catholic Culture, uh, How the Catechism Can Shape Our Common Life, and I thought he just hit a home run on how he treated the topic of trust. So I want to read a little bit of Ryan Topping, and then reflect with him, and apply it to Abraham's life. And I think much will be gained there. So, all right, if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to chapter 15, and again, I will go ahead and read verses 1 to 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? 
for I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a slave born in my house will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, my friends, chapter 15, verses 1 to 6 is very much a critical juncture in the spiritual journey of Abram. He's, I know I use Abraham, but he's still Abram, right? Abram clings to the Lord's promise of many descendants that he heard in, back in chapter 13, verse 16, and a land inheritance that was promised to him in chapter 12, verse 7. But he is forced to wrestle with the unsolved problem of what? Childlessness, Right? Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a slave born in my house will be my heir. What's going on? Right? He, he, he has a right to ask that question. What is going on here? God is giving him an opportunity to be tested and found faithful, as he will in chapter 22, verses 1 to 14, of course, in the great binding of Isaac. All right, so here again, we are to look at this topic of trust because ultimately this is what is brought before Abram, right? Now, as I just noted, I want to turn our attention to Ryan Topping as he talks about this topic of faith and trust. This is what he has to say. And I, I absolutely love this, and then we'll just kind of reflect with it. Everyone has seen people gambling with their lives. Sometimes it looks comical. And sometimes it looks sensible. But however it looks, I believe we can learn a lot from watching closely the kinds of risks people regularly take. People do things such as walk onto an airplane, or lie down beneath a surgeon's knife, or throw seeds onto the cold dirt, or themselves into the warm arms of a lover. All of these activities rely upon one person trusting another without guarantee that their risk will be rewarded. People do remarkable things like this every day, rich people as well as poor, clever as well as silly. What interests me about all these activities is that the ordinary man who embarks on such adventures does not because he despises his life, but because he loves it, or at the very least, he loves the things that he hopes to accomplish with his life. So what is Ryan Topping talking about here? Well, the farmer tosses seed onto the ground because what? He hopes it will pop up again. Just as much as the man of, of business maybe steps onto the airplane because he hopes it will bring him down safely again. Everyone knows that sometimes engines fail and seeds rot, right? But these facts hardly keep, we could say, businessmen at home or, or, or farmers in bed. Brothers and sisters, vitality, adventure, and gain always include some aspect of trust, dare we say risk. It looks as if the same passenger, the same patient, uh, the same farmer, as Ryan Toppy notes, 
And the same lover must what? Act. Act in order to succeed according to some virtue or principle of common sense that allows them to function in the way they need to, right? And what are we talking about here? But trust. Trust is the foundation of any kind of personal sanity and certainly every possible society. If we stop trusting, my friends, in the smallest things in life, we will cease to function as a society. Imagine if people stopped getting on planes. Imagine if people stopped throwing seeds under the cold dirt. Imagine if that just all stopped, if it all ceased, if there was no longer any trust. Trust is a necessary human virtue. And it is necessary because without it, we cannot know all the things we need to understand. And certainly we could say it is a virtue because trust allows us to do things we could not accomplish on our own. There's always an element of discipline. We have to put forth the act to get on the plane and make all the necessary sacrifices, if you will, that allow us to get on the plane. If that seed is going to actually bear fruit, much sacrifice, much toil must be acted upon, so on and so forth. So now, some of you might object, you know, when it comes to our relationship with other. Maybe not all people are worthy of trust. You know, we do not always share secrets with our boss. We do not always share secrets with our telemarketers, with the drunkard on the street. All of this is true, but such examples do not prove necessarily a lack of confidence in what we are talking about here as it relates to trust. Rather, we could say they illustrate it. As Ryan Topping notes, we appeal to trust, especially when we withhold our trust. What is meant there? Well, when we debate who or what ought to be trusted, it is not the idea of trust that we question. Rather, we doubt whether trust is warranted in this or that particular case. That is what is at stake here. So when a farmer questions his supplier over whether he should plant chickpeas or wheat, he is unsure not whether plants grow, but whether these seeds will survive in his wet soil. That's what he's questioning. When a, a father questions his daughter as to whether she should marry her boyfriend, it is likely because he doubts not the idea of marriage per se, but the good character of her suitor. In other words, my friends, the real question here is not whether or not we believe and trust, but under what conditions it ought to be invoked. Put this in the context, my friends, of the much larger question of whether or not God exists. To not believe in the existence of God is still yet a belief in something, right? It's, it's still yet a belief that God doesn't exist. And this is so relevant because trust is the most concrete act and virtue of what? Faith. Faith. Why we argue against the existence of God really is another program, and we have taken that up before, right? We use uh, our atheism, our so-called atheism, as nothing more than an excuse. Because if we believe in God, that means we have to take up <laughs> the laws of God and the challenges that come with God. 
and we don't want to be challenged. We don't want to change. Mea culpa. We, we all struggle with this each and every day. And so far as you are vested with the flesh, you will struggle with this. Not, not so much per se whether or not you believe in God, but the challenge to convert more deeply in God. And for some, not everyone, I get that, but for some, certainly in many conversations that I've had with people, atheism has become nothing more than just that one thing they can talk about because then it, it means they don't have to change their lives. Again, not to go far too into that, but certainly relevant to our much larger discussion in trust, because I do believe it to be a salient point that those who claim to not believe in God are still actually exercising a very definitive belief. I don't believe in God. I trust that God doesn't exist. All right. Now, as we are talking about this question, this question that is not so much whether we believe in trust, but under what conditions it ought to be invoked. What are its optimal conditions? Well, Ryan uh, Topping answers this question. There is no general answer. Knowing when and when not to trust someone, my friends, or something for that matter, is what but a matter of prudential judgment. The reasonable person gets on the plane, right? The unreasonable person thinks that each smiling stewardess conceals a hidden plot. The reasonable man follows his love to the altar. The unreasonable man never puts on a tuxedo because some women are unfaithful. So on and so forth. So it seems that strength of action, my friends, very much requires a cultivated neglect of thought. The sane man probes the sane man questions, the sane man considers, ponders, and then he flings himself over the rail of unknowing. He flings himself over the rail of what? Trust. Ryan Topping says the reasonable man is reasonable precisely insofar as he knows when deliberation ought to give way to decision and decision over to deed. That is to say, decision over to the act, over to the leap. St. John Paul II says, Coraggio, jump into the unknown. Okay, what does all of this have to do with Abraham? Well, a lot. Abraham <clears throat> is a reasonable man. Certainly he has already had these encounters with God. And as we have already touched upon in our initial reflection on trust, we know that Abraham was also a man of faith, where he has exercised very specific acts of trust. And as he has, one can discern that he has contemplated that if God is love, which is absolute other-centeredness, if you will, the absolute of willing the good of the other, then there is not an iota of self-interestedness in God. So if God is asking him to do something, if God is putting his faith to the test, then he has to act, act upon what is reasonable. And what is reasonable is that God is not a selfish God, you see. And so as we reflect into the richness of this theme of faith, and more specifically 
this concrete act and virtue of faith, which is trust. Be mindful of some of the practical things that we talked about this evening, especially as they are laid out in Ryan Topping's work, Rebuilding Catholic Culture, How the Catechism Can Shape Our Common Life. Certainly that initial reflection is very important to Ryan Topping because once we can understand that trust is a part of every aspect of what we do, we all have something in common. We all have something in common. I'm going to be getting on a plane here in a few weeks, and I'm going to have something in common with the other 200 people on that plane. I trust the pilot, right? And that's reasonable. That's reasonable. Okay. All that being said, let us go back into another very important verse. Verse 1. When God says, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, this is the first time that you see such battle language, if you will, in sacred scripture. And this very much projects a very rich topic to be had in how we think about God and his relation to man. Uh, What do I mean? Well, we have to go back into the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we read of the Greek word sphragis, sphragis, which translates as seal. In ancient times, the sphragis designated the object with which a mark was stamped, or the mark that was made by the object. Therefore, the sphragis, the word used for seal, used to impress a mark on something like wax. So the seals we speak of here were often used by a king or or a queen or a royal official as a sign of what? But authority, identifying the owner of the property or the sender of the letter. For example, we read in Oh, uh, let's see here. Let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 8. 1 Kings chapter 21, and this is the narrative around Jezebel, right? Verse 8 reads, So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. She sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who lived with Naboth in his city. Okay, so there you have an illustration of what we are talking about. We also see the language of seal throughout Paul's epistles, do we not? How about 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22? He has put his seal upon us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So here, Paul's teaching points to what? But the indelible character imprinted upon our souls in baptism, and we should also say confirmation. This spiritual mark that signifies God's grace and protection, while its permanent effect makes it impossible to receive the sacraments of initiation more than once. In the past, I have talked about how grace is like sap, a very powerful image for me, and I know for others as well. How is grace like sap? Well, what is sap? Sap contains all the the nutrients of the tree, the water of the tree, even even the life-giving hormones of the tree, right? Grace is like sap because grace gives us all of the life-giving property of God. Now, what happens to sap when it hardens? 
it becomes amber, right? Well, grace is like sap because inherent to grace is a protective agent. And that agent is, is the gift of the Holy Spirit, which shields us from the adversary. Brothers and sisters, grace is armor. <laughs> we see clearly that in Paul's theology. What circumcision did to the body is what baptism does to the soul. It marks it with the sign and seal of the covenant. We have put on Christ. We have put on the armor of Christ. So the seal was the authentic sign of Christianity and certainly can be seen in different ways with the church fathers. Starting with Paul, it has three modes of expression, if you will. First, that we are created in God's image and likeness. The seal imprints upon the soul the very image of God. St. Gregory of Nyssa says, the imprint of rebirth. Our first armor, my friends, is that we have the power to cry, Abba, Father. Romans 8.15, right? We did not receive a spirit of slavery in which we fall back into fear, but the spirit of adoption in which we cry, Abba, Father. The cry, Abba, Father, acts like a shield. Second is the army of Christ. The sphragis was also the sign that enlists us, my friends, into Christ's army. One where we are called to fight the good fight of faith, huh? What does St. Paul say? He very much applies this theme in his own vision of a Christian triumph. What do we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I love that verse. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. We have the likes of uh, St. Cyril of Jerusalem speaking to this topic in these words. We have been enlisted into the campaign of Christ. Tertullian, another church father who was also a lawyer, speaking in typical lawyer fashion, says, At baptism, we are taking a military oath where we are enlisted into the service of Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, the ammunition that we carry are things like the rosary and certainly the, the sacramentals we wear, but above all else, the liturgy. Where did the confidence come from for the Israelites as they were set to go into battle? But the liturgy, <laughs> the trumpet blast was a calling for all the Israelites to go into battle, yes, but not before they offered up a thanksgiving sacrifice, a thanksgiving holocaust. Liturgy was their protection and their reassurance that they were going to triumph in God's name. It was an act of trust. In the end, my friends, what good soldier goes into battle without first knowing the strategy to defeat his opponent? We enter into the life of the church in all of our sacraments and sacramentals, we could say, that we might be more informed on how to defeat the adversary. Third, as it relates to these three expressions that baptism communicate, is that we belong to the flock of Christ. As the sphragis was the mark in which shepherds branded the beast of their flock in order to distinguish them, certainly we are to recognize that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd, and the good shepherd knows his sheep and will defend them against those prowling. And Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd, what did he say? I am the good shepherd, protects us. 
He is our armor. When we read in chapter 15, verse 1, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. He has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit to protect us, to shield us from the adversary. And of course, his son, his son who we are called to imitate, that we might become more protected in the light of the one who is now so close to us, so intimate to us. We will accomplish great things the more we trust in God. And this feeds on itself, because if you don't fear anything, you will trust Jesus more. This goes back to the principle of what you feed grows. Trust in God, the stronger your shield. The stronger the armor, the more you will trust in God. So, in verse 6 we read, And he believed the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abram trusts in the promise of offspring despite old age and the inability of his wife to bear children. This, my friends, again, is not the first time he has put his faith in God in the Genesis narrative. Long before this point, we see Abram building a relationship of trust with the Lord. Remember what we talked about in chapter 12, verse 1. He obeys the voice of the Lord. In chapter 12, verse 7, in chapter 13, verse 18, he, he builds altars in honor of the Lord. In chapter 12, verse 8, he calls on the Lord in prayer. And last week we talked about in what? Verses 22, chapter 14, verses 22 to 23, that he swears an oath in the name of the Lord. From the day that God called him, Abram's whole life has been an adventure of faith. And we rightfully say adventure because this is what faith is all about. So many of us want to go on an adventure, right? Who doesn't want to go on an adventure? If you were to ask anyone, I'm sure they would say, yes, I would love to go on an adventure. There's no one greater adventure than faith itself because the more you trust in God, the more open your heart will become to the great things that God has in store for you. And brothers and sisters in Christ, the great things that God has in store for you will be an adventure unlike any other. I promise you that. I promise you that. So many of us love surprises. Let God surprise you. Amen. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of this evening. The gift to be able to reflect into the richness of your word. And the gift of faith. That we are reminded that faith, before it is anything, is a gift. And certainly a gift that we are to exercise and that great act and concrete virtue of faith, trust. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.